0: This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, my name is Eric Bagley here in Stockholm, Sweden. Welcome to episode 19 of the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. And for those of you that listened to episode 18, you know, we featured an interview with the security expert Elizabeth Buchanan. We talked about current challenges to the Antarctic Treaty System and also some of the particular challenges that Australia is facing. And here on episode 19, we're going to be getting a a somewhat different perspective on uh, Australia, the Antarctic Treaty System. We have a legal expert, Dr. Jeffrey McGee, Associate Professor in Climate Change, Marine and Antarctic Law at the University of Tasmania in Hobart. So, uh, Dr. Jeffrey McGee, welcome to Polar Geopolitics.
1: Yeah, thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, so Jeff, a lot of stuff happening in your hometown there in Hobart, where the uh, the 38th meeting of CAMLR, the Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, has recently concluded. For the eighth consecutive year, uh, there was a failure to establish marine protected areas in um, East Antarctica, the Weddell Sea, and uh, the Western Antarctic Peninsula. Would you say this is an indication or perhaps plays into the narrative that there are cracks forming in the ATS?
1: Yes, thanks Eric. Look, I think I'd start by saying that, look, certainly within the the field of international law and particularly international environmental and resource law the, the Antarctic Treaty System is one of the poster children you know it's, it's one of the really 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 good news stories so I think that's you know worth bearing in mind in terms of the performance of, of international regime uh, more generally the Antarctic Treaty System's light on the hill you know when we're, we're thinking about the recent kamla meeting and and the inability to find consensus around these marine protected areas we have to keep in mind the whole raft of good things that Kamala does on a day to day day, year-to-year basis in terms of its management of the finfish fisheries and the krill fishery, which is you know, all sort of happening in the background of the, the science that's being done and reported through CAMLA on those sort of issues is going ahead at the most recent meeting in a, in a very sort of usual and successful sort of way. So I guess it is true though that you know this, this um, marine protected areas issue has now you know, been around since 2012 with the exception of the, you know, the 2016 agreement on the Ross Sea MPA it's proved difficult and yes again there was a disappointment in the air at the end of this meeting that we couldn't get consensus around these new MPAs, particularly the East Antarctic MPAs, which are, of course, a particular concern and relevance for Australia. But as I said, you know, I think it's important to keep it in context, you know, that the usual sort of day-to-day business of Camlar is going on as usual and going on well. It's just this one uh, high-profile, important issue that there is unable to be consensus at this point in time. And essentially two countries holding it up. And uh, there'll no doubt be further work done you know, over the next year or two to look at the issue further and try try and get that consensus through the next year or the year after.
0: But do you think there's this consensus basis for decision making there in, in, in Camelar? Is that part of the problem? Or is it just that you have certain uh, interests that just don't uh, line up between France, Australia and Russia and China on the other side of the uh, of this issue?
1: I don't think it's the consensus decision making rule as such, the the rule by which the ATS institutions work. I don't think that's the problem. At its core, you know, international law, particularly in these sort of areas, is a consent based system. So you know, the idea of, of gaining consensus amongst all parties before moving forward is consistent with that sort of consent-based system and ensures that once rules, measures are agreed, that countries will move forward and likely adhere to those rules. So I don't think it's the problem with the consent-based approach. It's more, as as you just pointed out there, you know, some differences in interests or perspectives of interests amongst the key players and it's on the public record that, you know, the key players that are under convinced at this point in regard to the MPAs, Russia and China, and differing views about the levels of you know, scientific proof or scientific evidence um, that's been put forward to make the case for these extra MPAs. Or, you know, the background kind of beliefs or background concerns about uh, keeping areas open for harvesting and fishing. Combination of those things, it's still hard to sort of prize them apart, you Now the, the way the arguments get made. Most countries in Kamala, you know, uh, 24 or 25, seem to be uh, happy uh, for consensus to form around the issue. But there are two important countries that remain unconvinced and further work needs to be done.
0: In one of your um, recent, your recent uh, works, you've introduced this idea of Antarctic regime complex. Perhaps you could explain that. It seems like a, a very useful concept.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Eric So this. Um, it draws on a paper which we, I published with a good colleague Marcus Hayward in the middle of the year in the Australian Journal of Maritime and Ocean Affairs we did a special issue there on the future of the Antarctic Treaty system and the idea is that a lot of the, the previous work that's been done on international institutions, international law, comes out of this body of theory called regime theory which uh, Oren Young is a, the famous American international relations theorist was one of the key people who developed regime theory and the way it's been traditionally applied to the Antarctic Treaty to the area 60 degrees south is looking at the Antarctic Treaty, CAMLA, the Sealing Convention, and the Madrid Protocol and the various measures that have been developed under those instruments. Looking at that group of treaties and the measures that came out of them as a a regime in the sense of a bunch of rules and institutions that shape human behaviour in a desirable way in that part of the world. So that sort of way of thinking about um, Antarctic governance has been, I guess, predominant over the last 30 or 40 years. You know, Famous figures like, say, Chris Joyner, the famous uh, US international law and national relations expert, very much used regime theory in his work. But what we're doing in this Uh, with this idea of the regime complex is saying look actually we, we need to look beyond the Antarctic treaty system institutions and treaties now in particular because some of the key drivers and challenges for the Antarctic region are now coming from factors and drivers that are outside the area of 60 degrees south. Things like climate change, things like ocean acidification, these, these sort of global drivers originating from the area outside of 60 degrees south or, or human behaviour outside of 60 degrees south. So more and more these days what we're seeing is that the Antarctic Treaty system as the, the dominant governance regime is now having to interact more and more with other regimes, which have been set up for other purposes, whether it be at a global or regional level. Say the UN climate regime, that's obviously of great importance for Antarctica, the uh, International Maritime Organization's polar code in relation to shipping. So it's so a different the N treaty system can no longer be thought of as you know dominating the field as such um, below 60 degrees south more and more we need to think in terms of, an, of a regime complex or, or the way that the ND treaty system interacts with other regimes from outside the area in
0: governing together this area below 60 degrees south you I know mean, these different regimes often um, in conflict or are they more moving in similar directions or in, in, when they're not in line with each other how are these uh, these uh, conflicts?
1: Look, I wouldn't say that it's obvious, overt conflicts. It's more that these other regimes are set up for different functional purposes or with different functions. So, for instance, the whaling regime you know, under the Whaling Convention was set up for the purpose of regulating the whaling industry initially back in the, in the mid-1940s. And, of course, with high seas rights being um, essentially carved out of the regulation by the Antarctic Treaty, we see the Whaling Treaty you know, operating down in the area below 60 degrees south in respect of a, you know, a key species in, in terms of ecosystem function in the area below 60 degrees so there you know we have this functional separation between governance of whaling and governance of other activities below 60 degrees south which have been predominantly looked after by the antarctic treaty system similarly with say climate change as i mentioned you know global climate change is predicted to be a, a major driver of biophysical change on the antarctic continent and the southern ocean but as i mentioned earlier the human activity that's driving global climate change is predominantly happening, you know, above 60 degrees south. So there we have the UN regime, the UN climate regime, set up to deal with a global issue like climate change, but the performance and an outcome of that global climate regime will have a very, very significant effect on the biophysical environment of Antarctica Mm. in mid this century and later this century. So there, again, it's a kind of functional interaction or functional intersection between the Antarctic Treaty system and the functions that it provides for Antarctic governance below 60 degrees south and these other regimes set up for other purposes, which um, either directly or indirectly are also influencing the biophysical and human environment below 60 degrees south.
0: We've talked a bit about the uh, future of the Antarctic Cree system, or we've at least uh, alluded to it. You've described the ATS as the poster child, the light on the hill of uh, Antarctic uh, governance, perhaps even on a global level. But of course, uh, different commentators have made different statements on the future as being murky or in doubt. What's your um, take on the on the future of the Antarctic Cree system as it now approaches uh, in just a couple of weeks, uh, the 60th anniversary of its signing?
1: Yeah, look. I think it's really important to say with that 2048 date, it often gets trotted out, you know, even here in Australia in uh, newspaper articles and, and commentary pieces, as being some end to the Antarctic or possible end to the Antarctic Treaty, you know, on that date. That's not correct at all, okay. Well, I just want to say that very, very clearly. The Antarctic Treaty itself doesn't have an end date in it, okay. So we will continue on unless the parties decide to end the treaty by some other means. But there there is no end date to the Antarctic Treaty. The twenty forty eight date is in the Madrid Protocol, which is of course the environmental protocol to the Antarctic Treaty, and it's just a possible review date for the Madrid Protocol. But it requires one of the countries uh, in the protocol to actually ask for a review conference in 2048 to ask for changes to the Madrid protocol at that time. So unless if no country comes forward and asks for a review date, then nothing will happen at 2048. There was a review date for the um, Antarctic Treaty at 30 years, but no country asked for anything, so nothing happened. OK, so, so the 2048 date is, a, is a, in some ways a, a chimera. Nothing may happen at 2048 or there may be a review conference if a country calls for one. But uh, in terms of wider questions about the future of the Antarctic Treaty and the Antarctic Treaty system more broadly, I think it's really important to think back to that first 30 years of the Antarctic Treaty system from the early 1960s through to the, the early 1990s. And, you know, the treaty, the, the Treaty system showed remarkable resilience during that period and adaptability during that period, which was a period of very, very intense superpower geopolitical conflict. I mean, the treaty itself came out of that heightened period of nuclear standoff between the Soviet Union and the, and the United States. It was born out of that type of intense geopolitical conflict. So it not only did it act as a demilitarisation and denuclearization sort of initiative, which was very, very pivotal at that time in 1959, and in so, so it was resolving important issues of conflict at that time. But if we, if we go through to the 1980s, we see the question of Antarctica debate, which was sought to be introduced into the UN General Assembly by... By the uh, Malaysia and the G77 countries, which was again potentially a, a significant threat to the Antarctic Treaty, but was again accommodated by the treaty parties, by you know, important initiatives for reform, such as the creation of the Antarctic Treaty Secretariat and the negotiation of the Madrid Protocol five or six years later. So you know, an important challenge, a geopolitical challenge, or, or, or certainly a, a strong sort of political challenge coming out of developing countries to the Antarctic Treaty, again was able to be accommodated and dealt with very Successfully within the treaty system And also the switch from 1989 to 1991 from A mining convention which had Of course been negotiated um, Under the Antarctic Treaty, the abandonment of That mining convention and the, and the switch Two years later, the Madrid Protocol in 1991 as an, as an environmental protocol With a mining ban, that period Of differing interests amongst key states within the anarchy treaty system again being able to be accommodated within the system and then the success of the marine protocol as, as it's gone forward over the last you know, near 30 years this really shows that the anarchy treaty system you know despite superpower competition despite geopolitical conflict has a pretty really good track record of being able to adapt and shift itself and still maintain its kind own of core functions and core values so I'm not as pessimistic as many that new sort of challenges to the system that are arising now, that are coming now from climate change and the rise of China and this apparent sort of geopolitical contest that the US and China are now in. I'm much more optimistic that the Anadi Treaty system can show that type of resilience that's shown in the past in adapting to these sort of new challenges and these new political environments.
0: You mentioned the rise of China has been one of the largest changes since perhaps 30 years ago. And it just so happens that the uh, Shuelong 2, the uh, Snow Dragon 2 icebreaker, China's first uh, domestically uh, built icebreaker, has just recently arrived in the harbor there in Hobart where where you are. Is is that correct?
1: Exactly right. It's uh, where I live (laughs) is on the hills above Hobart. I can actually see it from my house.
0: Okay, well, how timely. So as you as you peer down upon Shui uh, Long too, uh, and then we have this discussion on uh, the geopolitics and the legal regimes, the political regimes of, uh, of the Antarctic, uh, perhaps we can talk a bit more now about China. And not just China, but China in relation to Australia, your home country, which was uh, one of the themes of our last discussion uh, in the previous episode uh, with uh, Elizabeth Buchanan. And uh, you've recently written about uh, this issue, uh, Australia, China, the uh, Australian Antarctic Territory, and uh, a couple of different uh, key documents from these respective countries. The 2017 White Paper, China's Antarctic Activities, and Australia's 2016 Antarctic 20-Year Strategy and Action Plan, in which you introduced this idea of bifocalism. Perhaps you could talk more about each of these countries in relation to each other and to the ATS in general.
1: Yeah, look. I'll just start with that concept of bifocalism, which is important, I think, in understanding the position, particularly of the claimant states under the Antarctic Treaty of the seven claimant states, which includes Australia, of course, with its 42% claim. This idea of bifocalism has been in discussion of Antarctic law and policy for decades, and it's the idea that with the effective temporary settlement of the sovereignty issues through Article 4 of the Antarctic Treaty, which Effectively puts the seven claims of the claimant states on hold as at 1961, when the Antarctic Treaty came into effect. The operation of Article 4 allows for the claimant states' interests in terms of those sovereignty claims to be looked after in the sense that those claims aren't abandoned. So the seven claimant states joining the treaty didn't abandon those claims. They're put on hold as at 1961. So if you, you can think of a you know pair of bifocal glasses where you've got, you know, you can look down or you can look into the distance, that looking down to the immediate sort of interests of the claimant states is sort of catered for under the treaty. So that's the sort of first part of the bifocalism. But then if you look up the wider interests of the international community, so you look up in the spectrum of this sort of wider sort of perspective on yeah. claimant states. Those interests were also able to be accommodated within the treaty because the peaceful use, the environmental protection values came out of the protocol, the that came out of the mid protocol, the demilitarisation that came out of the Antarctic Treaty. All those sort of wider interests in the National community were also able to be accommodated within the Antarctic Treaty as well. So you have this as I not only um, looking down at the you know, interests of in the claimant states, but also these wider interests in the National community are both able to be accommodated in a bifocal way by the and I think that's important when we're thinking about China as a rising player on the international scene. It's fairly clear, I think, that we've moved into this new geopolitical period at a global level where farming from the US and Russia, to an extent, are more competitive in terms of their positions and their interest in different global institutions, whether it be trade or other areas. So it's important to realise, I think, or think about the extent to which this wider sort of geopolitical contest between China, the US and others will impugn or come down into the Antarctic Treaty system and have an effect on its future. Now, the important thing here, as I've seen previously, is to... When you look back to the history of the United Treaty it has a pretty good track record of being able to sort of accommodate and to adapt to these wider geopolitical contests, wider political shocks from within the international system. So I'm reasonably optimistic, about having those colour glasses on, but I'm reasonably also optimistic that the treaty system has that track record and that ability to respond and adapt to these wider and new round of geopolitical pressures that are clearly going on within the international system. So yeah, China is an important player at a global level. It's clearly uh, a non-climate state in the sense that the an original climate state and didn't actually join the treaty until 15, 20 years after it was formed. So, uh, its interests in science, carrying out science, in you know, establishing research bases uh, on the continent, those things are able to be accommodated within the activities that are allowed under the treaty, but of course they don't give rise to any sovereign rights or, or claim of rights. Article 4 says, of course, whatever happens after 1961 doesn't give rise to any basis of sovereignty claims. So the, the interests of countries like China, who are some of um, these latter entrants into the Antarctic Treaty system, their interests are able to be accommodated in terms of ability to go to the continent, to do science and contribute in that way. And also the interests of the claimant states, such as Australia and others, are still maintained, as I said, under Article 4, in terms of those claims not having been abandoned and being put on hold effectively as at 1961.
0: I guess there's two ways of, well, you could say there's two ways of looking at it, perhaps. There's the legal way, what countries such as China and other uh, countries are entitled to do in uh, the Antarctic, under the Antarctic Treaty system. But then there's also this sort of wide-ranging speculation on what the true intentions of countries are, what they're actually, what what's the purpose of their different activities, mostly legal, I guess. But what what it actually, what are the long-term plans? And of course, China is often presented as a country thinking in very long terms, in terms of decades and centuries even. Um, and one of these areas where this has come up is in this domain. Issue where China wants to create a specially managed area around its Kunlun Station. There, from your legal perspective, as, as, a, as a legal scholar, how does this process appear to you in terms of what China is entitled to do and what politically is feasible amongst the other uh, the other states uh, that are active in the region, including Australia, of course, which is a part of their territory.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you look at here, we go, I guess. In terms of the other current issue which is um, generating a, a little bit of heat in terms of inability uh, for consensus to be arrived at, the Dome Kunlun asthma issue uh, is certainly important and prominent. These, of course, asthmas or Antarctic specially managed areas are allowed to be um, agreed by consensus of the Madrid Protocol countries, so this is all done under the Madrid Protocol rather than the Antarctic Treaty System itself. It, it's a consensus decision-making rule again, of course, so all countries Countries at you know, the Madrid Protocol meeting have to have to agree to um, an asthma proposal. China, of course, um, for I think it's five or six years now, has been trying uh, to put forward this asthma proposal in respect of the. A, a Kunlun base, which is about four kilometres high, right up on the, on the ice, ice sheet um, in East Antarctica in, in the australian claimed area. So, you know, it's a really high, very um, inaccessible um, place, which is very, very good for um, astronomy and uh, that type of research because it's so high and, you know, very good for that type of scientific research so the, you know, the indications are you know, that China's been doing that type of astronomy in that area. The proposal they've put forward is for the asthma is you know, seeking to regulate activity within that uh, area of, of the Kunlun domain research base. The difficulty, as I understand, that you know, the countries who aren't prepared to back it at the moment have is that asthma's or Antarctic specially managed areas, under the Madrid Protocol, they're intended to be formed in order to manage uh, situations where there are different countries' researchers operating in the one area, so as to avoid conflict, also, you know, to avoid research you know, activity getting in, in, in the way of other research activity. So it's meant for situations where there are at least two or more uh, research programs operating in the one area and to effectively give rules of the road in order to, as I said, ensure that they don't get in each other's way. The problem for countries uh, that are not agreeing to the Dome kunlun proposal is that it's really only China that's operating in that Kunlun Doha area. So the idea of, a, of an asthma for an area in which only one country is operating, you know, appears to be a new uh, interpretation of those provisions of the Madrid Protocol, which is perhaps not justified. So, um, and certainly that's that's my uh, reading of the provisions on asthma. Is that, the, that certainly the intent of when it was drafted in 1991. Was for it to apply to situations where there were you know, multiple countries operating in one space. That's, I think, the reason that consensus probably hasn't been formed. As yet, around that proposal, there may well you know, be nothing um, you know suspicious about you know, China making that proposal. It, it may well be uh, totally done with good intentions. However, the important thing is, I, I guess, not to set up set up any new precedents within the Madrid Protocol that might allow one country to create asmas in the future. If it was if it's done here, then you know other countries might come forward and ask for asmas in areas where only they're operating as well. And if that was happen. That might give rise to, you know, a suggestion of kind of, you know, soft sovereignty control over certain areas that if a country, you know, is the only one operating there and, and has created the rules for, for how it's to be managed and operated, it's you know, a kind of soft sovereignty. It's certainly not a proper sovereignty claim,
0: but a type of soft sovereignty. That might be the concern. This consensus process of granting asthmas and other other aspects of the uh, treaty system. This is a political process, of course. I, I, you're you're presenting um, a, a legal perspective on, on the ATS, and that's a little, where a lot of your research is. But there's a there's a certain is there. I mean, would you say as a specialist in this is there sort of a gray area between what is legal and what is political when it comes to resolving uh, these sort of issues?
1: Well, look, there, there is, Eric, and I think that's a really good point. And, and, I mean, my, my interest is certainly a, 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 the intersection between international law and what the rules say and geopolitics in terms of the you know, interests and spatial power relations between countries because I, I think it's fair to say that you, know, you the, the rules are influenced by the geopolitics and the geopolitics is influenced by the rules, okay? So it's a, they're kind of mutually constitutive. You can't separate one out too much from the other. So the rules are important, you know, the rules you make it international are important in the sense that they come out of that sort of geopolitical environment or, or geopolitical contestation they create uh, a set of norms, a set of rules which countries adhere to most of the time. They shape sort of country behaviour but it's true, you know, if geopolitical forces start to shift or start to change then that will place pressure on rules or at least the way we interpret the rules, okay? So uh, so it's, it's it's important I think for international lawyers not to, you know, just read documents and read documents with rose coloured glasses. It's important to keep in mind the geopolitical context in which the rules are written and the, and the geopolitical forces that are placing pressure on how the rules should be used and interpreted. So that's that's a really, really good point, I think. And yep, certainly here, you know, um, there might be that some might take the view that, you know, China, um, in, in putting forward the Domei-Kunlun proposal, you know, might, you know might be wishing to do so in order to, you know, build its esteem, its importance within the Antarctic Treaty system uh, more broadly and, you know, given its, you know, uh, position in the world and also the number of bases that it has. And so it might be doing it for national pride purposes for, you know, establishing itself as a major player within the Antarctic Treaty system. So there, there may well be those reasons, you know, in the background as well. It just might be that, you know, trying to achieve that sort the status in this way might be sort of running up against the rules of the way asthma's were intended to operate and so might be causing you know some tension and conflict with other countries uh, on that basis we can't read the rules and countries attitude and behavior in relation to the rules in isolation we've got to look at them both together as I said they're, they're kind of mutually constitutive the rules and the, and the geopolitics are very very much go hand in hand
0: Oh, thanks, Jeff. That's a really useful explanation and perspective for this, uh, for the purpose of this podcast. I think it's often uh, sometimes uh, not so clear to people where the law and the politics uh, meet or, or are separate, but uh, as you say, they're, they're often uh, mutually constitutive of each other. To wrap up this really uh, fascinating discussion we're having here today on uh, on the ATS and uh, Australia and other aspects, I want to just conclude with a little bit about this uh, new book that you've uh, edited together with uh, Elizabeth Lean. the uh, volume, edited volume, uh, Anthropocene, Antarctica.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right, Eric. Thanks for the plug-on. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, look, Elizabeth Lean, of course, is well-known to a lot of people who, who work in environmental humanities and Arctic humanities. Elizabeth is a good colleague here at the University of Tasmania. What it is is essentially different perspectives on this new geological age, which we, on most account from most scientists, have moved into, which is the Anthropocene. And this, this is the age of humans being one of the driving geologists, um, physical force on the planet. What we're asking in the book is what does this mean for Antarctica, for the continent, for human use of Antarctica, for the ecosystems, marine ecosystems? What does it mean for the way we understand Antarctica in it terms of its past and its future? Have a bunch of really interesting perceptions from different humanities, social sciences and law disciplines on the Antarctic scene and what it means for Antarctica um, in terms of our understanding of it and, and the government Arrangements but left
0: we'll to adapt to it. The summary of the book, it's a one-line summary at the beginning of it. I think it's a nice way to wrap up this discussion here, Jeff. Describing the book here, I quote, Anthropocene Antarctica offers new ways of thinking about the continent for science and peace in a time of planetary environmental change. So perhaps you can just, just to conclude, uh, say something about this idea of the continent for science and peace. That's the way it's been perceived. That's the way it maybe has been. Is that what you think it will continue to be for the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 100 years?
1: Yeah, look, Eric, I really think it's important that we don't overblow lack of consensus around marine protected areas within CAMLA or lack of consensus around the asthma proposals within the Madrid Protocol. The day-to-day work of the Antarctic Treaty System, whether it be the treaty itself or the Madrid Protocol or CAMLA, that day-to-day, year-to-year work is going on in terms of its governance of the region. I think it's important that we don't overblow these current areas of lack of consensus. And simply we don't sort of kind of catastrophize in terms of what wider geopolitical concerns and biophysical concerns such as climate change that we don't catastrophize what those things are likely to do to the antarctic treaty system as i said you know it's been very successful and has looked on very very well in terms of the international law discipline it's seen as being the light on the hill or one of the international regimes that's really worked well over the last 60 years that's effectively taken military conflict out of that area below 60 degrees south of the planet that's following the igy the international geophysical year has allowed that area of the planet to effectively be dominated by peace and scientific investigation and since the Madrid Protocol in 1998, the environmental protection. So those key values, science, peace and environmental protection, have really dominated this area of the planet and through the Antarctic Treaty system. So it's important for us to, you know, I think, respect that, respect the way that the, what the treaty system has done, respect its adaptability and its resilience to those outside political and geopolitical pressures. And, you know, not with rose-coloured glasses, look forward and think it's just going to remain the same. It won't. There are current geopolitical forces. There'll be others, you know, in the next decade and the decade after. But the ability of the system to be able to, as I said, adapt to those forces and to be able to hold true to its core values of science, peace and environmental protection, the track records there. And so we can be cautiously
0: optimistic that it will continue to perform those core values and core functions. Well, Dr. Jeffrey McGee, Associate Professor at the University of Tasmania, has been fantastic talking. I think we've learned a lot, gained some really great insights into the ATS and into regimes, international regimes that govern uh, the world below 60 degrees uh, south and also some of the global governance regimes that that are tied to this. So thanks very much, Jeff, for being with us here today on the uh, Polar Geopolitics Podcast. And I'd like to return to your view of uh, Long 2 there in the harbor in uh, Hobart, one of the gateway cities to Antarctica and a place of uh, Camelar and a lot of other things happening there to Antarctica, and we really hope to have you on the podcast again sometime in the future. like okay, been really enjoyable. You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics Podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter, at Polar Geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo designed by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.